Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Bennett. Hey, how are you? How you doing? You're on you're on our show, A Journey of an Aesthete. Well, that's good news. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. I'm going to say a, a little blurb up front, which I normally do. Won't be too long. Won't be, you know, won't overdo it. Just to sort of give people a sense of uh, who you are a little bit. Um, I always, uh, some of the guests on our show are people I've known personally. Um, and then there are other guests I've never met. In your case, you're a very good friend of our producer, Laurie Strickland. Um, if I understand That's correctly. True. And yeah. she, she's the one that put us in contact with each other. And, you know, again, like a lot of our guests, uh, you're multi-talented. You've had many careers, many lives, uh, and done so many, accomplished in so many areas. Uh, the, the focus of this show, of course, is going to be your work in teaching or education. But in general, uh, we like to do what I call a linear chronology which is just a fancy way of saying personal bio. And generally, you know, people, guests start from the beginning and, and you know, the, the, with the, uh, under the assumption, which has panned out pretty well, it worked out pretty well, is, uh, you know, when you do it linear, uh, nonlinear, wonderful, the good stuff starts to happen in the course of uh, people talking about their lives. So in your case, welcome to the show. And if you want to start from more the beginning or earlier days and, and talk about your innovations in teaching, the art of teaching, or what's on your mind. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, this has certainly been a, uh, something I've looked forward to. I've never done a podcast, so uh, I'm a huge fan, oh, but never done them, never done one. So, uh, when I look back, um, and I was thinking about this the other day because my students are writing where I am from poems, uh, which is very much like what we are about to do, this, this kind of linear progression. I don't know if you're familiar with that, with that uh, poetic format where uh, you really take a series of memories and then you spin that into um, this this kind of beautiful poem that is not specific enough, but it really it really highlights moments in your life, in my life, yep. that were just super controlling, and and I think really led me to this place. Yes. So I was thinking about that with my students, uh, and I, I of course read my own. I think that that teachers should model work for students to give them a sense of both, you know, that we're all in this together. And of course, um, they get to see the teacher doing the work as well. Yep. So it buys you a little bit of credibility with them. So it was really interesting that uh, as I was going through, I could see the, the these places in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're, they're just as real today as they, you know, as they were when I was a small child. So this is very interesting where I am from. That's um, it's a, it's, this is a super interesting poetic form. So um, 
and when I think about when I think about where I am from, uh, it really goes back to this this place of um, of where I've always had a love of reading, mm-hmm. but I didn't have it for a traditional sense. I had it because it was a sense of escapism. Yeah. I went to I went to the library like some people go to a hiding place. That's right. And I went, That's yeah, I went to the library and I would hide among the Zane Grey novels. And then I moved on to he's, he's an author. I you know I have to confess an author I've never read, but I know that <laughs> I know that he's beloved. I think among Southern and Midwestern boys or males. I think. If I remember correctly, because when I was living in Tampa um, in the 70s, it seems like all the boys that I knew sort of read Zane Gray or like Zane Gray. Anyhow, I've spoken too much, but go ahead. I just, just going <laughs> to. Well, Zane Gray is, um, and I mentioned him in, in, in that poem that I read or that, that I wrote. You know, he always get you know, the, the hero always got the girl. So it's a more, it's a very formulaic style of writing, mm-hmm. and uh, but I just fell in love with it. I made it my goal one summer to read them all. Oh, uh, so yeah, so that's so so reading is really kind of where I began. I don't remember a time in my life where I was not a reader. Yeah. Um, so I come from you know uh, pretty basic, uh, humble beginnings. My father worked for the railroad. And uh, my mom, my my mom worked for an insurance agency. Wow. Um, and then they divorced when I was 10 mm. and life fell apart, as it does for many people. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what common, I did not know. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, that's a very common uh, experience, uh, particularly people growing up in the 70s and 80s. Um, I, I was just going to say that my parents divorced when I was 21, 22. Mm-hmm. It's a whole other conversation over. It's a different kind of pain, different kind of turmoil um, than when it happens right. when you're a young child. I mean, um, um, but in any event, I just thought of just a making common common bond there of sharing stories. But uh, go, sure. So, so at, about at ten, yeah. Uh, so at ten, of course, that's such an impressionable age. What I did not understand at the time was that my mother was was suffering from schizophrenia. I didn't I didn't see that as a ten year old. I just saw my mom doing really weird things. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then when my parents divorced, of course, my father washed his hands of her and said, "That's that." And we wound up with her. Mm-hmm. So um, at the age of 10 and a half, uh, we moved to Florida uh, with my schizophrenic mom. We lived in Jacksonville. Yeah. We moved in with her parents, and my mom essentially disappeared. She oh. just disappeared. She would return, but she was lost. Right. right. She was completely lost. So of course I didn't I didn't realize what was going on, um, but um, the her parents, my grandparents, not happy about having two rambunctious, one an adolescent. My brother was a teenager by that time, not excited at all about having us there. Um, it turned into a horrible situation. About a year later, 
um, after we had essentially just been roaming the streets of Jacksonville, he just loaded us into a truck one day, into his pickup truck, Mm -hmm. drove us to the middle of Georgia Mm -hmm. to a little town called Hawkinsville, put us out in front of the Rexall drugstore and said bye Mm. and left. Mm. That was the last time I ever saw him and the last time I saw my mom for about 30 years. Wow. So um, my father reluctantly came south and picked us up, and we began this new life. Uh, And the new life began with a sentence, and I'll never forget the sentence. It was, uh, boys, uh, forget your mom. This is your new mom. Her name is Judy. Mm-hmm. And that was the introduction to the stepmom. Interesting. So, so moving forward, you know, I had I had all the troubles that you would think would come along with such a traumatic experience in one's life. Mm-hmm. I made it out of high school, and my goal was to just get out of high school and into the army. I went mm-hmm. because where else does one go to sort their lives out but the United States Army? So that's where I went. I'm yeah. sorry to sorry to uh, interject here. Do you mind holding that thought? I'm just trying to get a uh, a the years this would have been. So you you would have entered the armed forces in what round what year? I'm just cur- curious. Eighty five. I entered the army in June second. I graduated high school June first of 1985, and June second I was in basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Wow. Yeah, the next day. Um, and it's, it's here, it's, it's, it's in the army that things started to change. I didn't realize it at the time, but things were starting to change. Uh, and often this is the way it works in life is that, you know, you, you start to get these breaks and you don't realize that the breaks at the time, you just kind of think that perhaps, well, that's luck. I'm not sure that luck is really what, mm-hmm. what wound me up here. Um, so in the army, uh, you take a test, you know, to see what you're qualified for for that. So I qualified as a, as a combat medic. Wow. So, uh, I learned how, you know, to do all the, all the medicine of the battlefield, but I also learned hospital medicine and that's where I wound up was in a hospital ER. Mm-hmm. So I'm this 18, 19 year old kid you know, handling trauma, trauma patients mm-hmm. and doing rounds up on the floor with a physician and that kind of thing. And every every other, like every third day, I would work with this one particular physician. He was brand new doctor, mm-hmm. brand new. He was one year out of medical school, brand new. And um, his name was Dr. Elledge. He's just phenomenal. But anyways... So Dr. Elledge and I would sit and talk. Here was this super educated, had the whole world in his hands, and he's talking to this 19-year-old that really had nothing going for him. And it was through those conversations. And every now and then he would tell me, you know, Michael, you, you could really go do something. You could go to college. You could, you could be something. You don't have to settle. Right. And those conversations, I didn't know it at the time, but they were landing on my soul in such a way right. that they were changing me. They, they, were, yeah. they were making me the different, a different person. 
I mean, so, it, it, occur, it occurs to me deeply that, you know, I know you said that at the time you describe a sense of being lost and not having a sense of the future. Right. Um, on the other hand, uh, as an outsider listening to this, you're already doing something of great accomplishment. In other words, working, I mean, the job you're doing, working with sick people and you're working with people in the most dire circumstances and dealing with life and death and, and these, 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 um, elemental matters and on top of even that you have you found a mentor you found somebody with wisdom and and so there's a lot going on to me is what i what i was going to say and and you know mitch you're 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 right but of course you need some distance between the events right and you know i i guess perspective would be a better a better term i didn't see it at the time but you're absolutely right i was doing really Important work, critical work, saving lives, um, and at the same time, what I didn't realize was that Dr. Ellis was saving mine. Yes. I just didn't realize it at the time. Uh, so when I got out of the Army, I started going to school, and it was a struggle. Right. <laughs> it was a struggle in every way. Every way. Um, so I, what school would that have been? That would have been Gainesville College. Okay, in Florida, yeah. No, uh, oh. Georgia, a little oh, junior sorry. college. There's also a Gainesville yeah, in Georgia, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, oh, that's, yeah. 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 Just this little junior college, I needed some place to land. Right. I had no idea what I was doing. It had been, I was never a great student in high school. So I started going to college, and uh, I struggled mightily for those first couple of years. Uh, bounced around schools for a while, and then I started, um, I kind of got my life together a bit and um, got married somewhere in there. In the, in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, I got married in 1990. What was your, if you don't mind me asking, at the moment you're marrying, sure. what is the job you're working at that time? Was it... Uh, um, at the moment of your marriage, I was a, yeah, I was a phlebotomist. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, I was a phlebotomist. Uh, I was going to school, and I thought that you know I was, I, I don't really know that I had much much of a plan. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I was I was now married and I was expected to provide. Sure. Yeah. So I got really serious about school. That's what the marriage did. It forced me to get really serious about the school. Mm-hmm. And so I graduated with my first degree, and that degree was in communications. And then I went into sales. I went into I'm sales. Gonna, I'm going to slow you down a little bit because that's oh, already, already that's a, you've given, given the show a lot, episode a lot. So going into communications in like 1990, 91 – Right, that's like a period of a lot of new communication research, right? That was like a peak, at least from my study, because I remember when I, you know, ninety ninety one, those were the years I was reading John Fisk and reading communication theory. Uh, yes, I was, reading, sure. I was reading this stuff for fun, mind you, not not necessarily with, but but, but so you were there in the thick of it. Um, yep. Yeah. So go ahead. My intention was my intention was that I was going to go to law school. Oh wow! That was the plan. That was the plan. Interesting. Um, 
And because I thought, well, this is this will couple my love for argument, my love of reading, and I've always been a good writer. So I thought, well, this screams law school. Uh-huh. Took the LSAT, did really, really well on the LSAT, and thought, well, all right, it's time to go. But law school is expensive. Oh, yeah. And I did not want to get into debt. Yep. Uh, so um, I ha- met another mentor at the time. His name was Mike Scott. And he worked at the laboratory that I was working at. I was a phlebotomist. Mm-hmm. He was this good looking Michigan State grad. Uh, wore nice suits and had the beautiful wife, and yeah. he was a sales guy. Oh, he was a sales guy. Interesting. And he kept telling me we would go to lunch. He and I became friends, and we would go to lunch, and he would tell me, you know, you would be really good in sales. Yep. You would be really, really good in sales. So I come to work one day, and he says, "I have you an interview." That's fantastic. And I went out on the road as a sales rep. Wow. So is this, out on the road is, this is your first time, I think, going on the road in, in this kind of capacity, right? I mean, it, the, it really was. I had no idea what I was doing. I had a company car, had a corporate may, may American ask, Express. May I ask what kind of car you were driving when you were on the road? Well, first of all, what may I ask what you were selling, or is that is that Jermaine? Or do you, sure, sure. No, uh, I was selling uh, laboratory testing. Also, it's connected to hospital uh, materials. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was in the medical field for 20 years, 20 plus years, all because of those years in the Army set me up to really, I had no idea at the time. I tell that to my students all the time. You see it as an exercise in futility. I see it as you're banking for the future. You just don't know when you're going to use those skills. You just don't know. That's why you've got to do everything to the best of your ability. In a way, you're uh, exercising muscles when you're when you're or you're you're like doing the way that I see it. And correct me if I'm wrong. um, You're going out on the road in this company vehicle, and you're selling, I guess, stethoscopes. I don't know. I don't. I know nothing about that that field. You know, uh, taking blood. When you go to the doctor and you get your blood drawn, yeah, and it goes off to the laboratory. Well, I would sell the test. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so you're doing that's, that, that, doing that's probably teaching you an enormous amount just in that. So I'm interested in kind of what you're, how that's developing, I guess, and what, what you're gleaning about the Absolutely. World. So, so really what it did was it ignited this fire. It ignited this fire in me that, again, goes back to you could do something a little better. Mm-hmm. You could you could really be something. See, I never got that growing up. I only got that as an adult. Ah, yeah. So I was this I was this late bloomer when it when it comes to this idea of self efficacy, mm-hmm. right? That I can that I can achieve. I had no idea that I could do these things. So I was super successful in sales. I, I had no idea. I, you know, I just went on and talked to people. I just tried to be genuine and authentic, mm-hmm. and I made lots of money doing that. Lots of money doing it. Do you do you mind? So, if I, if I asked you the question: What does it mean to be in 1991, 92, 93 to be a successful salesman? What does that actually entail? Is it, I mean, I, w- I would imagine it's different than now, or maybe it's the same. Or what? What would your? Uh, well, I was, you know, I was making well in excess of 100K, which wow. back in the early 90s was 
pretty good money. Oh boy! Remember, I was uh, I was maybe twenty eight, twenty nine by this wow. time. So that's pretty good money for a thirty year old guy, you know. You and I are almost um, exact peers. It's been uh, you, know, you and I are almost exact peers. Uh, oh, okay. One. Oh yeah, I mean I'm fifty three, and that, you know, so I feel like. Uh, oh. I'm 54, right. There you so, go. yeah, we are almost exactly. So, in that sense, this is very much a Gen X episode as well, um, at least, at <laughs> exactly. least somewhat. So, you're, you're becoming successful, and I'm sure that's having some positive effects in your life. It, uh, it absolutely is having positive effects in my life. And yeah. at, uh, on many levels, it, it's kind of honing me or shaping me to become the person that I am today in the classroom. Again, I didn't know it, Mm -hmm. right? I really didn't understand, you know, the crucible that I was creating for myself. Mm -hmm. But that's really what it was. It was was this this place where I was, you know, it was, so I went, so um, let me get back on track here. So moving forward, thinking about uh, working in the medical sales, medical industry, um, the, the problem with sales is that you're, you're constantly looking for the exit strategy. Do you understand what I mean by that? Um, you might want to talk more about it because you probably have a lot to, lot to say about it. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear you. Please, please expound. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, so, um, my, my thinking is, um, well, the, um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Could you ask me one more time? You want to talk about the notion of strategy? Right, right, right. So, um, I think that, uh, my exit strategy is, an exit strategy, I'm sorry, for a sales guy is just simply the the way that you're going to move to the next position. You're always looking for the next job. You're always looking for the next pay raise. Okay. And often those pay raise. So what I didn't understand, Mitch, is that what I was really looking for was change. All the time I was looking for change. I was never satisfied. Interesting. And that was problematic. Right. That was really problematic. It's it's really hard to live with somebody who's always (laughs) looking for change. I'm sure sure because you maybe have a restlessness that maybe, um, I'm guessing, that's coming across to people in your life and in a a sense. Very much so. Sense of not being doing the very thing you want to do. And and I know we'll get to that. That's an important part of your part of your story, but, but I'm sort of wondering, um, at the time you didn't know what the cause actually was. You thought it was about the type of sale or job, or you didn't know that, right. this, that you needed this fundamental change. Um, exactly. So talk about that revelation or how that came to you, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, I have, so fast forward, I don't know how many years, maybe 10 years, 15 years, the first wife is long gone. She she moved on to better pastures. She had certainly had it with this guy. Huh. Uh, I don't blame her. Um, you know, I was not easy to live with at the time. Uh, and um, but I'm in what most people would kill for as far as um, 
a position. I'm working with a Fortune 500 company. Wow. I am making lots and lots of money, lots of money. Yeah. I have an apartment that I'm never at. Uh, it's just empty. It has dust in it. Um, it stores my stuff, but I'm always on the road. Yeah. And um, so. And it's it's um, also, it's also in the middle '90s, which which you know, in terms of national economy was a pretty flush yes. time, right? That was a time of, you know, a fairly. Oh, oh, I yeah, yeah. I mean, when I say I was making lots and lots of money, by this time it was well in excess, 185, 190K a year. Yeah. I mean, for a single guy with, with I mean, I was paying a lot in taxes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot it's of taxes. Too, but, but, uh, but, in, but there's a connection, I guess, or symbiotic relationship between your personal uh uh, you know, salary or job, and and also the mood of the nation, which I, which you know the Clinton absolutely. Years, well, yeah, the Clinton years and the optimism of those years, which was its own. That's a whole story unto itself. But go, but go ahead. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so I'm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire, but Jerry yes. Maguire writes the manifesto, mm-hmm. and he sends it out on the company email, and he essentially says, you know, this is my truth. This is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to do. And then he quits his job yep. and, you know, kind of forced. Okay. So I'm in a hotel room in Brea, California, it's about three in the morning. <laughs> and I literally sat up in bed Wow. in this swanky hotel room in the dark and said, I'm just, I'm done. I'm finished. I can't wow. do this anymore. Can't do it. Called downstairs to the front desk. I said, I need a car. And called Delta and said, I need the red eye, the next flight out of this place. I was in California, Brea. Mm-hmm. And uh, I flew home. And uh, as soon as I landed, put the American Express and my car keys in the ashtray of my company car at the airport. Wow. And had a friend come get me and quit. Just quit. Wow. And um, I went to... Uh, I went to uh, to school. I went back to school, and uh, I'll never forget. I walked in to the College of Ed hmm. and to the program director, and I said, "I want to be a say, I want to be a teacher." Wow! And she just looked at me like, "No way!" I mean, I was wearing Brooks Brothers, carrying a Coach briefcase, yeah. tag, your watch. I mean, you know, yeah. she just stared at me like, "No way! You are not going to be a teacher." Mm. Yes, I am. I'm going to be a teacher. That's that's what I should have been all along. Yeah. I'm here to become a teacher. And may, she may said, I, okay, I, I'll give you a... May I ask, I, I guess her hostility was because you didn't have the look of a teacher. I mean, I guess teachers... I mean, in my experience, teachers are never great dressers and they're, they're, you know, usually not... They're, you know, I dress more like the way you... Now, the way you dress then, probably when you went into that. But that's but but I'm, was it just basically that she had an image of a certain kind of person? Um, no, it was it was teachers at that time. I mean, my first year salary is what I used to spend taking doctors out to lunch. That's right. So but she, what she thought what she didn't know is that you had the fire. So in other words, she was saying right. no to the very person that was going to become a, a master educator. But anyhow, I'm getting too far ahead. I don't want to get too far ahead, but. <laughs> But that's a. It's okay. So, of it is, yeah. Is yeah. So so after the first semester, I came back and said, "Well, I'm still here, you know, and and I still love it." And 
you know, this is this is what I was meant to do. Yep. And um, that was nine, 18 years ago. Wow. That was 18 years ago. I've been teaching 18 years now. So in a nutshell, I mean, there's there's lots of pieces, and we could just go on and on. I could tell you all the really ugly stuff, but the really sure. important part of my life's work is teaching. Yes. That's really, that's, that's, that's who I am at my core mm-hmm. is a teacher. Uh, and I didn't realize that, and I really struggled early on uh, in teaching, thinking about the lost years. That's right. Right, thinking about the lost years because... I could have touched a lot more lives, right? But I was too busy, you know, chasing the dollar and chasing dreams and what I thought I should be doing mm-hmm. rather than what my heart was telling me I should be doing. But that's okay. I've, I've tried to make up for it over the years. Well, let, let me ask so. you about one or two moments where two things had to happen. You had to win these people you're working with or hired you over, or they had to change right. their mind about you. And also, right. in addition to that, you had to have, I'm trying to find the word, right, correct words here, you have to have, I don't know if it's revelatory experience, I really like this. It could be an effect you had in the kid's life or, or just whatever you, whatever comes to mind about, in the, about those, those things, anything that you might want to. Well, no. uh, initially, I mean, I had to sell my way into the program. Hmm. Right. That I was really familiar with what I, I entered the program with the, with the notion that a lot of people think, you know, you've heard the adage or the cliche, I should say that, you know, those that do do and those that can't teach. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, and, I have heard that. Yes. I don't buy it for a second. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. um, and he, he, to some degree, to some degree, I believe that for about a semester. <laughs> yeah. And and then and then the reality of what it was that I was doing in the classroom really sank in, and it was, mm. oh, this is this is this is not by any means an easy job. Mm. And then I started to look at it as my new challenge, as my life's work. And I I never had a bad day in the classroom. I just haven't. It's an amazing job. Would you say that when you're teaching is a form of soul craft or spiritual, not to get too pretentious, but it, it is a calling. And I know that you you had that revelation in the in the hotel. And I don't know if it's a Marriott or Hilton. What I'm curious what hotel <laughs> that was. Do you remember the, the uh, uh, hotel? Uh, uh, I don't remember. I just remember that it was not one that I would have paid for with my own dollars. That's for sure. <laughs> it was very expensive. Very sweet. <laughs> The uh, the shareholders paid for it. The shareholders paid for it, but but I would imagine you're, um, you know, I'd like to hear you uh, talk a little bit about. I guess the, um, I guess I call it soulcraft because I didn't know what other other term to use. Um, aspect of what you've been doing or what you were doing, and, and um, just a story. I must have well a class that inspired you to keep going, or or um. Uh, so so if we. Right, circle back to the 10-year-old, mm-hmm. right? So the 10-year-old was pretty broken, right? And spent his adolescence not understanding how broken he was. Yeah. Right, and 
you know, in my 20s, I did what a lot of 20-year-olds do, right? You know, you search for, you know, the meaning of who you are and what you are. And, of course, I did that with money. Huh. I just chased the money, right? Um, so there, there was no answers there. You know, for me, it was just a matter of making more money, but I was getting nothing out of making more money. I was getting nothing out of that. Mm-hmm. So when I go to the classroom and I and I became a teacher, for me, it was the first time that I had ever done anything in my life that made me feel better about who I was. Yes. It was the first time in my life that I started to really connect with Michael as a person, wow. right, of value. Wow. Right? So when I flip the lights on in my classroom, it's like turning the lights on in my church. Yes. Right? That's a, that's a very spiritual place for me, even with all the craziness that goes on in today's high school. And there's some craziness. Yeah. Right? But the connection between a student and teacher doesn't change. That's right. It just doesn't change. So, uh, and over the years, I have... You know, I've connected with students. Um, I had this one particular class. It was an AP literature class, mm-hmm. twenty uh, class of 2019, second semester. They were amazing. Mm-hmm. I still, still have contact with them. We still meet up. We still have lunches. You know, I was just, I just emailed them the other day and said that we're going to be doing a barbecue at our house mm-hmm. in July. And, you know, I want them all here. They're like my children. They're like an extended family. Wow. And I have dozens and dozens of kids like that from over the years. Yeah. And I think I don't know anybody from my sales job, from my sales life. Yeah. Not a one. I don't know any of them. I don't remember a name. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly so, all your students and you're going to barbecues and you're um so that in that particular um literature class, A P literature, what um, did you want to talk a little, any more about details about the class content or what people were reading? Or what yeah, so so it was it was this it was this class it was um, it was uh, uh, spring semester of 2019 before the world fell apart. <laughs> yeah, and um, it was just that I taught them a lot of them when they were freshmen, and then I was getting them again as seniors. Oh wow! And we we really really liked each other. We really cared about one another. It was it was very much a teacher uh, student kind of vibe, but it was also this collegial type of vibe in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they, they they just they they were just so special uh, in so many ways. Um, so we were doing this uh, this this um, uh, writing technique uh, called feather circles, and with where students produce authentic writing, and they we literally sit around in a circle, and we pass this baton, yeah. and pe- you know, and the students share their work, mm-hmm. and that just became part of that class, yeah. and we were all sharing really deep, deeply emotional, caring type of, of work. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know, we just all, we, it was this great sense of um, family in that class. I've never forgotten them. Yeah. So at the end of it, uh, one of the students wrote me a poem of, um, titled My, uh, My Yellow Bicycle. And because I told them the story of my childhood, mm-hmm. uh, that was one of the only classes I've ever told the story of my childhood, yeah. uh, all the ins and outs of it. And so they wrote this poem called My Yellow Bicycle. Cried like a baby right there in the middle of class. It was, uh, it was a, a truly emotional moment, truly a moment. Everybody needs an anchor in life. You, me, just everybody. Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Um, Wow. Did you want, um, on the subject of poems, did you want to uh, read any of the poem you mentioned at the outset of our episode? You said you wrote a poem. In, in, oh, the, the where I'm from poem. Yeah, because we were talking about different poetic forms, and I was thinking about villanelles for some reason. I don't know why. And you know, there's so many different kinds of forms, right? Um, right, right. And I just yeah, read I'll it. read it. Oh, that would be great. I would sure. love that. Thank you. Sure. Um, so, of course, the title is Where I Am From. I am from a low-slung brick ranch on a street where I learned to ride a bike and explore a creek. From a tall, spindly pine tree that broke my arm and crabapple orchard that made looking at clouds magic. I am from a house in the woods where the ghosts of Civil War soldiers spoke to me through the early morning mist. And a creek where I learned to swing on a vine and what it feels like to be totally free. I am from Sassafras in Georgia Red Clay, whose power to heal my soul still exists today. I am from a yellow bicycle and Zhang Gray novels about the western sky and heroes that always get the girl, from Robert and Joyce. I am from Southern Crazy and Hidden Shame because my mother cannot see past the voices in her head and from the gut-wrenching devastation of a childhood ending in divorce. I'm from the streets of Jacksonville, where I roamed free while my mother slowly sank into the mist of madness. I am mm. from grandparents and other grandparents who neither loved nor hated, but simply were. From fried okra and pecan pie. From the last whispers of life from a grandmother as I sat stoically, and from the dark places that those who neither love nor cared can take you. I am from those moments when I realized all of these events have taken the Georgia red clay, the yellow bicycle, fried okra, and melded me into the person who loves his wife, his country, and his students. Mm. Well, Mike, Michael Bennett, that's beautiful. That's, that's, that's a fine poem. Um, well, thank you. I need to add a little bit of one to have a little bit of silence after that to because um, <laughs> of the because of the spell of it. Um, wow. Well, thank you for reading that. Oh well, uh, you know it's um, it's neat. I was telling that to my student yeah. yesterday. You know, as we were, I was, yeah. that's that's me. 
right? Absolutely, and it, yeah. it, it, you know, it, it carves off the finer points that, you know, perhaps are not so appropriate for the classroom, but yeah. You know, we've all got those memories, you know, we've all got those things, you know, kept deep in our closets. And for us writers, right, it's the fuel. Mm-hmm. It's the fuel that keeps us going. So mm-hmm. um, after I finished my first degree, uh, I went back and got a master's. And um, I had this professor, again, another mentor. Her name was Dr. Dawn Ladder Kirby. Oh. And uh, she was interested in memoir. Oh, yeah. She was interested in memoir, right? That was her. That was her focus. So that's, um, that's a big interest of mine. I mean, one of my hobbies is actually reading a lot of memoirs, and I've been reading memoirs for twenty years. I can't read all of them, of course, oh, but, but that's something. Right. Very, yes, is a big. It's a fascinating, it. fascinating read. Yeah. So, um, so uh, I was invited to participate in uh, the Kennesaw the Kennesaw Mountain Writing Project, mm-hmm. part of the National Writing Project. And in that, we had to write memoir. Yeah. And I was sitting at the computer, and I couldn't write. I was just sitting there. So Dr. Kirby comes over and sits down next to me and says, you're going to have to write that story. <laughs> you're going to have to write that story. And I'm like, I cannot write the story. I can't do it. And she's like, it's going to come out. You must write the story. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I, I, I eventually eked it out. Hmm. But that story, that moment, that KMWP week became the catalyst for me finding my mother. Oh, wow. That's that. It was that moment sitting in that lab with a blank, with a blinking cursor. Huh. Yeah. That forced me to say, OK, I need to go find my mom. Wow. Right. I need to go find the truth. So I did. I found the grandparents uh, neither love nor care, but just were. Yeah. I found their obituaries, and I started working backwards. Oh wow! Through their obituaries, and finally, I found somebody that knew my mom. Mm. And my mom was uh, living in a home. Mm-hmm. She had been institutionalized um, for many years. And uh, I reconnected with my mom in 2000, 2008, no, 2010. I reconnected with my mom. So first time I'd seen her in, oh, golly, 1977. Oh, wow, quite a year. That's quite a year in general. Yeah. Um, So, of course, she didn't know who I was. I I was forever in her mind a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. So again, uh, loss, mm. right? Lost years. Yeah. Now this loss. So loss is a big part of what I bring to the classroom. I I I tend to channel that, right? I'm continually yeah. aware that we're losing stuff every day, and it's just not stuff. It's memories and people. It's right. I mean that's that's, you know? that's foundational. I mean, in my view on this show, this this aesthetic show, um, I've done many episodes where I talk about grief and loss as as one of the foundations of all art mediums. Not you know yes. not just poems, but you know film and, and and you know over and over again. I mean, story narration and, and narratives. Um, it's it's so it's so um, constitutive. I I feel. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, you got well. Well, it's it's universal. Yeah. Everybody has it. Everybody experiences it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody understands loss. We all process it differently, but it's it's a constant in our world. Absolutely. Right. And um, so for me, when I when I found my mom, uh, it was it was you know um, opening Pandora's box. Yes. And then spending the last twelve years trying to put the lid back on it. Wow. Right. Sometimes we find stuff and we we get the answers that we've always wanted, mm. and then we really don't want to deal with those answers. And that was mine. That was mm. that was the case with me. I found out the truth. Yeah. Um. You know about what really happened uh, during the divorce, and you know everybody's marriage is different. I'm sure. certainly not one to to pass judgment there. Yeah. But. I found out the truth, and the truth is just it was it was a deal breaker for me in many ways, so it was a deal breaker so um, but finding my mom really sharpened my interest in pursuing my identity, nice. who I was, right, who I was, what made me want to teach. What fueled that desire to teach? Uh, by this time, I've been teaching uh, for almost ten years. Ten years. Um, and yeah. um, uh, so, my uh, again, one of my professors called me and said, "Why don't we're starting a PhD program, uh, or I'm sorry, an EDD program? Why don't you apply?" Okay. And I, I, it was, it was absolutely. I, I think it's time. Sure. I think it's, I, th- I think it was time. So, uh, I started my doctorate, oh. and uh, my focus was always on the concept of identity. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in why I became a teacher. I knew, but I knew that there had to be. Uh, research to back up just what I felt in my gut. Right. And I wanted to see if there was theory out there that could really support what I thought. Yeah. So that's what I did. I wrote my dissertation on vocational identity. Vocational identity. That's, um, now you say you already completed that. Is this, is this, um, I did. I did. I finished it. Do you you mind uh, uh, sending me a PDF of that and I can read it? Oh, sure. I would love sure. I'll be happy to. I'm the kind of, you know, I'm a very strange person. I'm the kind of person that would, you know, <laughs> not only enjoy reading that, but it, I don't think it would take me that long. I don't, I don't know. But um, I would like to, to look at that, take a peek at that, if you don't mind. Um, uh, no, it's, uh, it's some of the best writing I've ever done. Okay. Really, it is. It is. A lot of people uh, finish their dissertations, want to put them on the shelf and never look at that document again. Yeah. And for me, it's very personal. You're it's a qualitative narrative. Yes. And it tells the story of five teachers, and we do almost what you and I are doing here. Yes. We're, we are exploring their story, why they became teachers. Wow. And I identify these four areas of interest, these four areas of specific areas of uh, 
of uh, a commonality amongst my participants. That's right. And it was those areas that we explored. And then at the end, and you'll see this when I send it to you, uh, there's a photo elicitation element where I had my participants take pictures of things that they felt would better explain their identity. I see. And then they provided the meaning behind those in an interview. So they essentially walked me through their photographs. That sounds really beautiful. Um, do you feel? I mean, your work at you, you've already done this dissertation. I've never my I've never pursued a doctorate. I've always wanted to, but I stopped at a master's. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to say, does it does it occur to you? And this may seem like a like a duh sort of naive question. Is there a is there an artistic? Because um, when you talk about um, the participants showing uh, photos of things in their past. That are significant. That's that's almost like a work of art into onto itself, possibly. Is would you say it, it is? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it. It absolutely is. Um, the the format of it is a bit stifling at times, right? Because you have this very rigorous mm -hmm. academic format that you have to follow. Mm -hmm. But then you get to chapter four, which is your findings, yes. and that. That's just an amazing outpouring of all of this pent up, you know, let me tell you everything that I've discovered by talking to these people. Yeah. And for me, it was, I remember one of my methodologists, Dr. Ivan Abellan, he comes in and he says, Michael, that was, that was some inspired writing. You wrote like 110 pages wow. in a day and a half. Wow. You know, and it was, it was inspired writing, but it wasn't my inspiration. I was so engaged in the stories of my participants. Mm -hmm. I was so, I, I, I just, I felt like I really understood for perhaps the first time what made a teacher tick, right? And it was, I was able to articulate that in the dissertation and then I had all this photographic evidence to kind of back it up. Yes, I don't. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a fun process for me, grueling, but yeah. fun. Um, but you know, that's part of my personality. That whole, you know, I don't mind the suffering. Hence, doing Iron Man and all of that kind of thing. So, well, you strike me as someone that's pretty comprehensive and thorough. You're not, you know, you're not somebody, you know, when you commit to something, I, I. I it sounds like you're all in, whatever. I am all in. Whatever that project is, which is certainly better than some alternatives we could think of. Pe people half-assed doing things and not finishing things, which is a whole. That's a whole other problem. But um, but generally, you know, what, it's, it's sometimes it's not good, right? Sometimes it's not good. I have a problem mixed with problem. things. It, it might put off other people, but that's a. Is that what you're what you're saying? But. I don't know who. Are well, it, it, my focus sometimes is is just scary, right? Like if I say I'm going to do something, yeah, um, I, I am. I'm absolutely going to get that done, whatever that might be. Uh, I said in 2006 that I was going to do Ironman Florida. I had never done an Ironman before, Ironman triathlon. I'd never done one of those before. So you're a, I'd never you're done a, serious, a triathlon before. So, down. so you're a serious athlete, too, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, wow. I've done two Ironmans. Oh, wow. I did Florida and Chattanooga. 
I've run four 50-mile races, uh, and I've attempted two 100-mile runs, um, but have not gotten the 100-miler done yet, but I have another one on my radar. <laughs> wow. That's uh, I didn't know. <laughs> that's all. That could be, be an episode onto itself, probably. Um, I, 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 I think um, I know that the little that I know about you, 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 uh, the 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 uh, subject of your dissertation is something right. that you're u- utilizing in your own teaching, right? Is this true? So, um, I am. I absolutely am. Um, I work very hard at getting my students to start to look at themselves, right, as a work in progress. Yeah. And I want them to understand that identity is constantly changing. That we're so much more than the name. We're so much more than our family. We're so much more than, you know, who people perceive us to be, right? We're just you're gonna just get a, gigantic. You're going to get a big amen from me, amen, or, or absolutely from me on that. That's a, it's something people too often forget, the, 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 the fluidity of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, right, right. So we we so I constantly try to get them to understand that we are really just an amalgam of our memories and experiences. Yeah. Right. And that that amalgam is constantly losing things and adding things. Mm. So it's organic and it's living. That's right. And people need to you know so they need to understand that identity is constantly changing. Right. And who they are today is certainly going to be different from who they are six years from now. Wow. And of course, students, sometimes, you know, they have such a a nearsighted view of life. You know, they can't see over the horizon. And I think it's really one of the best things that I do in the classroom is I try to share my life, my life Mm -hmm. experiences, because I want to give them that vision that, listen, I'm a guy from nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. I had no future, no chance, nobody pulling for him. And look at me today. Look at me today. I'm standing here in 2209. That's my classroom number. Yes. I'm here in 2209 with a bunch of great kids yeah. doing my life's work. Who knew? Yeah. You know? So, it's that mo- you know, kids are, um, kids just want to be told that. Life is not against them. Sure. The life is for them. The life is for them. Well, that's the uh, so. that's the, um, the the need humans have to d- develop and you know make something of themselves. I, I you know I um, yes. which is which is which is universal. Uh, whatever. Absolutely. Whatever you know, and notwithstanding the specificity of what the making is, that's very different from person from person to person. I was I was wondering. Right. Um, you, you know a lot about teaching. Is there something that would be safe to say that all the other teachers you've met, if we're talking about the vocation, the vocation identity of teacher, is there something that's shared amongst all of you folks, something you found time and again that no matter the difference of what part of the country or that there's there's these common features? And if, and if so, what would those be that you, do you, have you found or – or do you? I, well, I think that a true teacher really believes that what they do in the classroom really matters, really matters. Yeah. And that content is always secondary to the relationship. Mm-hmm. 
right? The content follows the relationship. Yeah. So the best teachers that I know, right, are not students' favorites, but they're the most trusted by students. I'll say that again. They're not the students' favorites. Mm. They're not the easy teachers. Right, right. Right? They're not the, yeah, you know, they're the teachers that, you know, bring it every day. Bring the bring the hard stuff. Yes. You know, force the kids to think, right? Mm. But always do it with the velvet hammer, right? And really get the kids to understand that this matters. And it matters because you believe me. Right, and I wouldn't lie to you. I, if I say it matters, it really matters. It matters to me that you know this. Right. Because this is important. Right, so when you ask about a commonality among teachers, the best teachers that I know would teach for free because they just believe in their craft. Yeah. The money is completely secondary mm. to what they do in the classroom every day. They're deeply involved in their students' lives, in their communities, in the research and teaching. And their goal, my goal, is to be a better teacher today than I was yesterday. Yes. Every day. Every day. Kids deserve that. Yeah. Kids deserve it. So there's that sense, you know, teaching's hard, Mitch. Yeah. It's a hard game. It's hard. Uh-huh. You know, the... The media loves to beat up on teachers. Mm-hmm. Social media will, you know, eviscerate a teacher before sunup. And well, that, um, you mentioned social media, and that reminds me of in, prep, in prepping for this episode, you were talking about something that I don't know a lot about because I don't have kids of my own and I'm not a teacher. And also during the time of COVID, I've been fairly isolated from the world. You you said that you've noticed changes in actual etiquette and mores and how people read and in texting that were very oh, for sure. Do you mind talking a little bit about those changes? Because that's something that I think might be important. And you seem to have firsthand experience of those things. And you know whatever comes to your mind. I don't I don't know. Sure, sure. So uh, every parent out there understands that uh, the child and the cell phone are essentially one being. It says that in my syllabus. I understand that you and your cell phone are one being, right? But in, you know, I totally get that. Uh, And that if you want to give a kid really high anxiety, make them put their phone out of arm's reach. Wow. Right? Um, So at the front of my classroom, I have a pouch. Remember when, uh, where people used to put their shoes? You know, and like hanging on the back of the door, some those little plastic pouches. Yeah, yeah. That you would put. Okay, so that's where I keep the students' cell phones. They all have a number, and they come into my classroom and they drop their phones off. Yeah. And I, my deal with them is that I promise them that I'm going to be much more interesting than anything on Snapchat, Instagram, or Facebook. Well, you, you certainly, you certainly thrown down the, the you know, you, you're basically saying this is going to be, you're going to be more interested in this than anything you think is better. Think of you were, you're, that's right. That's right. Uh, and so, you know, there's my challenge to myself. <laughs> challenge to yourself, your students, and you meet that challenge, right? So you, you, exactly. So you told, exactly. you told me right now you were teaching two Shakespeare plays, not just one, right? 
Correct. I'm teaching Romeo and Juliet to my ninth graders, and I'm teaching Macbeth wow. to my seniors. Oh, wow. But, but, but let me, just one more thing about the cell phones. So the, the problem with the cell phone, right, <laughs> is that kids, students, have been trained to think in 140 characters. They tend to think in sound bites. Mm-hmm. They tend to think in what can I fit on the screen? And they see that as an entire communicative process. I, I uh, send you a text, you email, or you send me a text back. That's a conversation. Okay. And it's not a conversation, right? There was no tone. So you, there was no mood. Okay, so Go ahead. what you're saying is that society is redefining what a conversation is. Absolutely. They're, redefin- Absolutely. they're redefining it so that it's not conversation. So that it's taking I would argue that taking I would argue that society is not doing that. I would argue that Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and whatever other social media sure. are out there, right? Yeah. They're the ones that are propagating the idea that you don't need to talk or be face to face with somebody. Yeah. You can just send a text. One of the things that I have my students do is write a letter to their parents and mail it. Wow. Put an honest-to-God stamp on the envelope, take it to the mailbox, and they've never done that. Wow. I don't know how to do that. Never done it. Wow. That's remarkable. Anyways. That's remarkable. I just... um, it, uh, you know, it occurs to me something popped into my mind. I mean, I know you're you're probably pretty judicious and um, um, conscientious and about what to reveal or not or discuss. But is there, when you talk about the uh, the photographs, the photographic exhibit as part of your doctorate mm-hmm. and the vocation? Do you mind using as an illustration a, when you did that with a certain student or something that comes to mind? That was noteworthy, or that you said, "Ah, this is a good, this is a good illustration of." Um, so one of my participants yeah. uh, took a photo of uh, kids playing cards in the back of her room. They were on a they were on a carpet, mm-hmm. and they were playing cards. And I I know Mitch uh, that you are familiar with the film The Breakfast Club. Yes. Yeah, of course, right? I mean, that's that's like, you know, our movie from the 80s. It was the defining movie, The Breakfast Club. Yes. So um, so that's what I titled that photograph uh, in, the, in my dissertation was The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. Because sitting on that rug, sitting on that carpet playing cards, was the popular girl, the football player, right. the kid with autism, and another kid that was kind of uh, an arty, kind of, uh, you know, goth kind of kid. And they were all Alice playing cards. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 They were all playing cards. And it was this organic moment, right, in her classroom. Yeah. What she didn't understand when she took that photograph. Was that that's so that's such a part of her identity because it's she really believes in this idea of authentic teaching, 
and inclusion, yeah. that that's the environment that she created. Right. And it was evidence in this, in this photograph. And I, re- I remember seeing that photograph and thinking, oh, my God, if we could just get this in textbooks for teachers. This is the goal. Oh. This See, is the goal. Gotta, this you is where include her uh, her project or part of her her project, um, right? That's not that's oh, like, she, that's, yeah, know. she's in yeah, she's in the dissertation. Oh, I know she's in the dissertation, but you wanted to travel further, right? You wanted to include it in, I guess, in the future textbooks. Is that is that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this should be the the goal of all teachers to have an environment in their classroom, right? Because what's missing in that photograph mm-hmm. are cell phones. Yeah. No kid is on their cell phone. What are they doing? They're communicating, right? They're having a moment of community sort playing of. cards. Oh, that is definitely good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. that, is, that is not something that is done today. It's being consumed by this desire to you know, hide behind the veil of the electronics. I guess people are hiding behind screens, I guess. I guess. But t- yep. talk a little bit further because it, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, I mean, of course, the, there are these features that are missing from the so-called, I guess I'll call it counterfeit or half-assed communication. Um, right. You know, there's, there's missing, you know, the eyeballs, of course, and tone of voice and, the, you know, the, you know. Right. I know that actors... Um, I once took a really good acting class. It's one of the only ones I took. Uh, I won't get into the details, but there was a lot of discussion of how saying the word, the three words "I love you" a hundred different ways. That it's you could say it in a menacing way or in a loving way, etc. I mean, I'm just saying there's all these these things are missing from from I guess all this texting back and forth. Um, Right. Do your do your students uh, get says the light bulb go off and they say, hey, you know, maybe I'm missing something here when I'm doing these things, or have they have you have a sense that they see? It's the interesting. My seniors, my seniors cannot live without their phones. They can't. They can't live without their phones. Huh. But they absolutely relish the time that they spend face to face with each other. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that's different than five years ago. Five years ago, they wouldn't speak face to face. They would, they would literally sit in the same room and just text each other. It was bizarre to me. Just bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. But 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 today, they relish the FaceTime, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are are pushing back against social media. They use their cell phones to keep up with each other, mm-hmm. but they're becoming more tools. Than they are communication devices. Now that's the seniors. Interesting, right? The freshmen are still buried in theirs. They, you know, they, you know, the idea of missing something on Instagram is, you know, that's akin to, you know, getting the death sentence. Yeah. So, um, well, it's, it's akin to being in, in a cave, you know, isolated from all, you know, not not yeah, not being. Missing out on something, yeah, something important. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I have to send you a link to um, a video that I that I will show that I show the kids. It's um, uh, the the cave parable. Who's that by? Uh, anyway, I'll, I'll have to send you a link for it. It's really kind of fascinating. I show it in class, and then we talk about 
how, you know, what if the world was a mirror? What if, the, what if we grew up with simply shadows as opposed to reality? And then one day we figured out what reality was as opposed to the shadows. How would that change our perspective? Well, that, that was, um, of course, that's, that's Plato's allegory. That's very, very there you go. Yeah, that's Plato. what I'm thinking I mean, of. Yeah, the cave allegory. Yeah. That's all. I mean, I've, I've been involved myself in many. One of my hobbies is philosophy. So, okay. of course, you know, I've, we talk a lot about people like Plato and Kant and Hegel and Marx and, you know, and Michel sure. Foucault. And, 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 so, and some, some of that... Um, dovetails with education theory like john dewey of course uh you know and people like right. people, john holt um yep. is there um it, it, is there anything uh, i really hate saying goodbye but these episodes always have an ending uh, <laughs> as, as every as we've as you've said things end and they come back and they return right is there anything as we as we approach a conclusion of this episode that you want to say you know, off the top of your head, that's important to you concerning teaching schools, your own dissertation, anything that comes to your mind or that you feel you want to say? You know, what, well, Mitch, one of the things that um, uh, I am often know that students will say to me is, you know, I wish that my parents could see me the way that you see me. Mm. And it's, 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 it's different. So what I would say to all the parents that are listening to this episode that have students, right, is that what you see in your student is really what they want you to see, right? But there's so much more, mm -hmm. but it takes a concentrated effort to get beyond their defenses. You know, NATO has nothing on a teenager when it comes to defenses. They, they, you know, so in order to get inside a teenager's head, you first have to earn that right to be inside their head. And they got to make space for you. Yes. So, you know, I guess one of the things that I would say is they're worth it. They're worth it. Not because they're your child. That's, you know, they're not my child. But they're worth it in every way. I, I try to get to know every single one because they matter. Mm -hmm. They need to know, they need to know that an adult in this world really cares about who they are, mm -hmm. knows their dreams, knows their failures, and is willing to support. Mm -hmm. So well Mike Michael Bennett, that that is beautiful. And I and I really am glad that you that's what popped out of your, your head and mouth and, and spirit and soul to conclude this. Uh, I really want to thank you for your, certainly your generosity and time, uh, but also the beauty, the beauty of what, what you were able to discuss. And, and I thank you very much for all of that and being on our show. Well, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I've, uh, I've enjoyed our time together for sure. It's, um, it's always, uh, it's always fun to talk about you know, those things in life that we love. So. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.
Thank you.